The scripture this morning is from Jeremiah, chapter 13, verses 20 through 27. It's on page 6 in your bulletin. Lift up your eyes and see who is approaching from the north. Where is the flock entrusted to you, your beautiful flock? What will you say when he appoints someone as head over you, your defenders, your trusted allies? Won't pain grip you like that of a woman in labor? And when you ask yourself, why have all these things happened to me? It is because of your many sins that you have been stripped and violated. Can a Cushite change his skin or a leopard its spots? Neither can you do good when doing evil comes so naturally. So I will scatter you like straw that is blown away by the desert winds. This is the future that I have prepared for you, declares the Lord, because you have forgiven me, forgotten me, and trusted in lies. I myself will pull up your skirt over your face and expose your shame. I have seen your adultery and lust, your disgusting idols and shameless prostitution on the hills and in the fields. How terrible for you, Jerusalem. How long will you remain dirty? The word of God for the people of God. As I mentioned at the beginning of worship, today is the last week of our worship series titled My Struggle with the Old Testament and and our conversation of the various things that we come across in the Old Testament that just don't seem to make sense to many of us. We read it, we pause, we think about it, and we think, that doesn't sound like the God that I believe in or that I worship. And so we're trying to figure out how to make a little bit of sense out of some of these texts and what they might mean for us today as a modern people. Right? So we've thought about the various topics over the last few weeks. We started with genocide as our first one, in particular those images of God commanding that the people take the land. And I reminded you that we missed out a little bit on the English translation because the Hebrew word that's key in there is the Hebrew word harem. Harem means religious purity. What God drives for in the land is religious purity. For the idol worshipers to be able to move out of the land so that the land could be purely God's and the people worshiping there would be God's covenant people. That it wasn't about ethnic cleansing of the land, which is sometimes what we can read into the scriptures, but rather how they maintained their covenant as a covenant people with God. Which also led to that idea of exclusivity. We talked about that in the second week, and the idea that God would be their God and they would be God's people exclusively. And we're reminded that that's not just an exclusive covenant. It's a covenant that's supposed to have blessing attached to it. The rest of it is, is I will bless you so that you might bless the, do you remember the last word? World, right? The covenant that was exclusive between God and God's people was to bless them so that they might inclusively bless all the world. So that was a vital part of what it meant for them to have that distinct identity and that exclusivity. Last week we tried to deal with the issue of condemnation and how that comes across in the Old Testament as well. The idea of blessing and cursing, seeing God as the one who blesses and God as the one who curses. But to also know that that, even though that kind of plays out in the world today, Paul had a very particular thing to say about that in Romans when he said, There is therefore no more condemnation for anyone who is in Christ Jesus. And for us to know today that 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 idea of condemnation doesn't work in our world. It is not part of who God is because there is no condemnation for us in Christ. Today we're going to deal with the subject of shame and 
how that appears in the Old Testament, how God is often seen as one who shames his particular covenant people of Israel. Now, as followers of Jesus Christ, though, I, I think we're, we're recipients of a great gift. We're recipients of God's sacrificial love. Amen? That's a great gift that God gives to every single one of us. You can say amen. That was not rhetorical. Amen? All right. But we're not just recipients of it. We're also supposed to be bearers of it, carriers of that sacrificial love out into the world that is beyond us. But we've got to think about the world that's out there, right? It's a fast changing world. It's so much different than maybe what the church is accustomed to and used to and had kind of settled into. We've got to learn some new things. We've got to figure out how to respond a little bit differently so that the glory of God can be brought to the world around us. And if we don't as a church, then there might be some shame that we'll carry into our future. Now, I recently read something that I thought was kind of key when it comes to understanding a distinction between guilt and shame, because I think we can think that those two things are similar to one another, synonymous to one another, but they're actually not. Guilt, according to an author that I wrote, guilt is often something that you feel internally. It's more internal to you. It is something that you can actually hide from the rest of the world. You can feel guilty about something and carry a smile, and people not really know that you're feeling guilty about something. So it's a little bit more internal. Shame is public. Shame is external. It is something you are embarrassed over or have embarrassed about, and people know the details of it, and you carry that into the world for people to see. It's something you can't hide that easily, right? So think about the days growing up. Any of you grew up in times where there were some things that you were proud of and there were some things that you felt a little bit of shame over, right? I, I grew up, in, as you most of you know, in the late 60s, early 70s. That was my time frame. And I remember being a junior high schooler in the early 1970s. And I remember that my parents didn't actually let me participate in the kind of fashion trends of the day, right? I didn't have long hair, and I didn't get to wear bell bottoms and stuff like that. My dad kept my hair cut short, and I wore Levi's 501 straight-legged jeans. And my peers let me know that I was not exactly fashionable, right? And it's interesting how peers and how they converse with you about certain things can also make you feel a little bit ashamed, right? Now, I want to say one thing. This is 2018. I look back on those days and I want to say thank you, Mom and Dad. Right? How many of you still have a leisure suit that's hanging up somewhere in your closet? You know, a peasant dress or something like that that you're still hanging on to and you're hoping for the 70s to come back around. Anybody? I didn't think so, right? Thank you, Mom and Dad. But looking back on that time frame, I wanted to fit in. I'm sure that most of us all, we wanted to fit in. We might want to fit in today even. But there's moments where our peers might ridicule us a little bit about not fitting in. And there's a shame that you carry around with you. Others of us, we might have been in the fashionable and we might have taken the opportunity to use a little bit of our power to tease some of our friends and to shame them, right? And you carry some of that now, thinking about the shame of being someone who misused your own kind of power. But I think after high school, you know, luckily my parents gave in in my high school years and I was able to fit in a little bit more. But I think about after high school and before I entered the service, there was a few things that I did that 
I know I'm not even close to being proud of. They were things my parents knew about, and we had conversations over, and not only do you feel a little bit of that guilt, but you also carry some of that shame in letting your parents down on the things that you have done. Now, I know, dear saints of the church, and I'm pretty confident and sure in saying this, that none of you have any idea what I'm ever talking about when it comes to feeling ashamed about anything. You good Christians, you. Or maybe I'm being a little facetious. Because you know shame. You have felt shame. You have been challenged, maybe, in your life about feeling less than and the shame that comes along with it. Being teased or bullied by a crowd of people that are the in crowd. Or being the one who has perpetrated some of that yourself. We all know what shame is. We have experienced it in our lives, right? And we know the shame that can come rushing in in moments. I believe that shame is a powerful emotion. It's a paralyzing emotion. And I think it's an emotion that we try our darndest to try to figure out how to avoid in our lives. Because pain can cause us to try and hide in plain sight. Pain, shame is something that can cause us to do some things that we would normally consider ever doing. Right? We would never do those things. It can cause us also to risk doing maybe the unthinkable in our lives. There are three stories in the scriptures in the New Testament that have people who are uh, have shame in their lives. Actually, two of them are from the New Testament, one of them is from the Old Testament. There are people who have shame in their lives. And you think about the things in which they do and how they battle the shame that they come across. In the middle of a very hot day, a woman comes to draw water from a well. She's a woman who's been married five times, divorced five times, and is now living with a man who is not her husband. All the other women, they come in the cool of the morning. That's the normal time when you come to draw water from a well. But this woman can't bear the shame of being in the crowd because everybody knows who she is. So she comes at the hottest part of the day to draw water. She chooses, she chooses to try to avoid shame. Think about a powerful man who had it all, wealth, prominence, women. But the one thing he didn't have was the beautiful woman he saw across the cityscape from his palace terrace. She was another man's wife. He did what all powerful men do of his day. He just decided to take her to have her for his own pleasures. Of course, the consequences of that are that she becomes pregnant. He's got to figure out how to cover up his abuses, so he puts a plot, a scheme into motion, and in that, it does not end the way he hoped it would. The next steps are to commit murder. To commit a form of murder. And once this powerful man is exposed, his shame is not only upon him, but his children. You think about a woman who pushed her way through a really thick crowd of people gathered around in the market area. She has suffered for a long time, and she's at a loss at at what to do next. She's suffering from a condition that causes constant bleeding, hemorrhaging, right? By ancient law, whenever she came into the public sphere, she was supposed to yell out, unclean. She was supposed to announce that she was unclean to all the world and say it multiple times so that as she came through the marketplace, people could actually move away from her, could scatter 
and make a way for her to come through. But in this moment, she decides to stay silent. She doesn't say anything to the people around her and in the crowd because she's daring to do the unthinkable. She has heard about this man that has healed all kinds of people from their diseases and their infirmities. And she thinks, if only I could just get up close enough to him and touch the hem of his garment, maybe I'll be healed as well. So she stays silent. She walks through and makes her way through the crowd. And she dares to touch a pure Jewish rabbi, even though she's unclean. And the Bible's filled with stories of people who are human. Some of them really human, right, if you think about it. They're public failings that we get to see and the very public shame that each one of them carries as the result of their actions. Now what's troubling, though, are the stories where it seems like God is the one who's portrayed as the bully, the powerful, the one who is shaming his people, individuals, and in this case, the covenant people of Israel. We just can't imagine God being something like that. God is one who shames people in the Old Testament. I think we wrestle with that. We might even reject that kind of image of God. Which makes you wonder, how do you make sense of a passage like Jeremiah? The image of God pulling one's skirts up over their head to expose their shame. Think about the context of Jeremiah with me for just a little bit and the history of what's going on in Israel and in particular Judah at this time. Jeremiah is a prophet. He's a prophet at the time of three different kings who reigned in Jerusalem, Josiah, Jehoiakim, and Zedekiah. And this is post the reigns of David and Solomon. So the kingdom has divided again, right? Northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah. It's a time where Israel has already been overrun by the Babylonians because they are now amassing their empire in that known region of the world. Judah is just on the precipice of it. They've been able to thwart the Babylonians for just a little bit of time, but they're on the precipice now of being overrun and sent into exile themselves. Jeremiah's words are an attempt to explain to the people why why they find themselves in the circumstances that they are, why they are about to be overthrown. And Jeremiah takes a moment to remind them of their sin, their very public disgrace, because they have done what God told them not to do. They intermarried with idol worshipers, their kings and their leaders, the ones that their ancestors clamored for and desired to have. They set up idol worship themselves and allowed it to take place in the land. The people of God that were supposed to be in covenant with this God of theirs, the ones that were supposed to bring blessing to all the world are now bringing shame because of their idol worship. They're no longer distinct. They're no longer different than any other nation on the planet of their time. Their shame was that they had abandoned the worship of Yahweh. The people of Israel and Judah were now acting like what the scriptures say, an unfaithful spouse. They've become a disgrace to themselves. One author wrote this and said, Israel became so proud and their pride so strong that it made them deaf to the invitation of God to repent. So you think about that line that's in here that says that a a person cannot change the color of their skin or cannot change, a leopard cannot change their spots, right? Israel had become so hardened, so deaf, they could not hear the invitation of God. They could not respond. And yet, God continued to call them forth. 
God sends the prophet Jeremiah to call them back to a faithful covenant because God knew that the relationship that God would have with them would be the only thing that would sustain them in the midst of their peril. You see, God doesn't promise through Jeremiah to protect them from exile and destruction. Rather, God promises to be with the people and to strengthen them in the middle of it. And that's what God was calling them to. The shame was the people were not heeding God's invitation to come and embrace this change. And so they suffered the the shame of it and the humiliation of it. I think about us today as the the church and how we're embracing and, and should be embracing some things and yet maybe we aren't. To hear and understand that the world around us is significantly changing around us. There are things that are at the doors of the church that are potential harm for us if we're paying attention to it. We've got to be able to embrace what's going on around us and think about the world that's changing around us. Has anybody told you that the days of Christendom are gone? Do you know what Christendom even means? So think about the days in which we, the church, just simply thought about opening our doors and the whole neighborhood would simply flock to us. The assumptions of when we were a Christian nation and most everybody believed in God. And when you moved into a neighborhood, you found your bank, you found your job, and you found your church. And it was your public duty to do those kinds of things, right? And the assumption that people are just going to come seek us. All we have to do is open our doors. All we have to do is be great worshipers, have good education, do wonderful care, great hospitality, and do a little bit of outreach, and everybody would be fine, the pews would be full, and the church would be happy. Those days are gone. Long, long gone are the days of Christendom. Read Pew and Barna Research and all of those. You'll see article after article about it. And those of us that have adult children that don't go to church right now, we know that those days are gone because they're now the nuns and the duns that aren't going to show up in this current context. And so we have to think about, as a church, how we're going to stand out a little bit more distinctly in the landscape of multiple choices that are around us. We've got to be reminded that we're in a different age. It's a digital age now with a high emphasis on individualism. We've had shifts in media, philosophy, science, religion, and the church has chosen not to shift yet. And we're going to need to. We're going to need to so that we might be able to embrace and make meaningful connections with our neighbors and the people that are around us. And if we don't, then we might carry the shame into our future of missing our opportunity to serve God in the way God wants us to and to serve our world in the way God's calling us to. So we've got to learn to behave and operate and act a little differently, which means that some changes have to take place for us as a church. I'm going to tell you a story about someone that encountered this kind of need and this kind of change in their day and in their time. Most of us know the story of Meriwether Lewis and William Clark, right? You've heard this story before. It's not just a bridge here in Kansas City. It's not just the Lewis and Clark. It's an actual story. You've heard the story, right? Okay? I want to remind you a little bit of it. Okay? Shortly after Napoleon sold the Louisiana Territory to the American states, the president, Thomas Jefferson, commissioned Lewis and Clark to do what? Explore. Explore new territory, right? 
Now, the mission was for them to find and establish a commercial waterway from the Mississippi all the way to the Pacific Ocean. That's what they were intended to do. Not only explore the territory, but find a commercial waterway to the Pacific Ocean. They believed that the Missouri would actually go all the way across the continent and end at the Pacific. So they started paddling up the Missouri River in their canoes with their team of 30 folks from the Corps of Discovery, right? They're canoeing along 2,400 miles they travel along to discover what they did not anticipate. And that is the Missouri ends at the Rocky Mountains in western Montana. There's still a ways to go to the Pacific Ocean. Now you think about Lewis and Clark in this moment and the decision that they have to make, right? They could have certainly just turned around and floated right back down the Missouri River in the canoes that they had brought with them and all the stuff that they had brought with them. But if you think about it, turning around would have meant failure. There would have been a certain kind of disgrace and shame in not achieving their objective. So instead of turning around, Lewis and Clark do what? They retool for the rest of the expedition. They have to get out of their canoes and figure out now how to hike the rest of the way. They had to change. They had to adapt to some new circumstances, and they did. And they were able to lead their group across the rest of Idaho and Washington State to finally reach the Pacific Ocean. They explored and achieved what was there for them. I believe that God has a destination for St. John's for us to reach. But I also think we're going to need to retool a little bit to get there. Which means I have to think about that personally as your pastor, as the leader of this church. I have to think about how I engage people, how I equip you as the congregation, how I empower you for ministry. There might be some things I need to do a little bit differently today. But it also means that we as a church have to think about how we retool, each one of us, so that we might engage the neighbors that are around us. Because believe it or not, folks, we don't need to send missionaries to Africa anymore. Because the Africans are going to start sending missionaries to us. We have become the great mission field in the world. Our own culture has become the new mission field. There are ample opportunities for us to share Christ with the neighbors who live next to us. The shame will be if we choose not to adapt to this new world. If we choose not to take God's message of love and grace to all. So I'm going to suggest, dear friends... That we evaluate. We evaluate our notions of faithfulness and what that means. And to hear a fresh invitation from God. To maybe put aside some of our old assumptions regarding the private nature of faith and the practices that no longer support the mission of the church that we do today. That we need to adopt and engage in some new ones. We might need to retool so that we can make meaningful connections with our neighbors that are right here and the neighbors that live next door to each one of you. We need to learn how to canoe the mountains that are before us. So here's what I think God requires of us and is asking of each of us today. For some of us, it might be just simply an invitation to think about some of the shame we might be carrying today. And that that might be an impediment, a barrier for us in our own lives. And to hear the message of God that mercy and grace is yours, that forgiveness and release are yours, that you can lay that guilt, that shame, whatever it is down today, God will receive it, and you don't need to carry it anymore. Or maybe to hear this invitation, to ponder some of your assumptions about how we as the church are to be in the world, 
And maybe think about the new opportunities, how you could retool, how things could be a little bit differently if you hear God's invitation today. Would you bow with me for a moment of prayer? Gracious God, in this moment, we come before you. We think today about how we engage the world around us. The shame of it would be if we continue to think that we can just open our doors, hang out a sign, have a good website, and folks will come find us. When so many people that we encounter on Monday through Saturday aren't even thinking about church on Sunday. It's a different world. We have reached the mountains. Lord, help us to get out of our canoes. Help us to think about the journey that is ahead of us as a church and how we'll need to be a different presence in our community. How we'll have to think about the ways in which we attempt to engage personally and corporately our neighbors. Lord, give us the vision, the insight, but most of all, give us the heart for this world to know that as ones who bear your sacrificial love, you are sending us forth to spread it in this world. Help us to hear that today. And we pray these things in Christ.